Let's pray. Great God, we come to you with hearts that are hungry for your word. We come as people that need to hear from you, the living and true God. The words of man are of no value whatsoever. We need to hear what you're saying. And we thank you, Lord God, that you have spoken and you continue to speak through your precious, infallible, inerrant, all-powerful word. May you speak to our hearts this day, Lord God. Amen. In John chapter 3, we met with Nicodemus, a highly educated Jewish leader who came to Jesus. And you remember, when did he come to Jesus? At night. It is very typical of John to include that detail. Not just as a historical fact, but as a symbol for the spiritual darkness that this Jewish leader even with all of his education, he still walked in. At the other end of the Gospel, only John tells us that when Judas left the upper room to betray the Lord, only he says that Judas went out and it was night. Very typical, John. By that description... Uh, The Apostle John is telling us that Judas was turning his back on the light to walk in darkness, spiritual darkness. Where did John learn to think like that? Unsurprisingly, from his Lord. In chapter 319, as we read last week, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. So if in John chapter 3 we have an example of a highly educated, very moral man, who at that time at least is still in darkness, in John 4 we have a powerful example of the complete opposite. These stories are clearly written back to back as a single unit. A unit of complete opposites. As in John 4, we have a half-heathen, uneducated, immoral, despised Samaritan woman. A person who was everything that Nicodemus wasn't. But here's the thing. When did Jesus meet this woman? At night? No, indeed. In the blazing heat of the midday sun. The symbolism is, once again, very powerful. As this woman is willing to immediately walk in the light once she encounters Jesus, the spiritual light. I want to look at this amazing passage. And our heading uh, for today is, Jesus greater than Jacob. Of course, taken from what the the woman said. 
And I want to divide our time in two. First we'll look at uh, Jesus' method, and then Jesus' message. So first up, the method. And here we're talking about our Lord, the way he reaches this woman for the gospel. It's, it's, it's very, very striking, very powerful. We all, want to, we all want to share the gospel, we want to pass the gospel on. And uh, I think we can learn an awful lot from the way the Lord interacts with this lady. Now in verse 3 we, we read that Jesus was taking off for Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. There is evidence that Samaria was not a popular place for Jews. So much so that it was seen that some Jews, if they were heading north, they would travel right out, right out, 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 and make a big circle and uh, come back into the, the north of Israel. And they would not even want to set foot in, the, in Samaria, such was a, their hate, hatred for it. Um, they, they really considered it to be really a, a, a very pagan place. But we read that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Why is that? Well, I think the answer is found in Sidecar. There at the well, Christ sits down, clearly thirsty. Along comes a solitary woman. Who would go to the well in the heat of a midday sun? Mad dogs, Englishmen. And it would seem a Samaritan woman. And this woman, Jesus, asked her for a drink. It's amazing that even though our Lord had come all this way to reach this woman for the kingdom, he starts talking to her, not from a position of strength, but from a position of weakness. He actually takes the risk. He's actually willing to take the risk of putting himself at her mercy. After all, she is a good Samaritan, probably has no love for Jews. And it's well within her rights to tell Jesus to go take a running jump. He's not getting his Jewish hands on her good Samaritan bucket. Forget it. But Jesus is strong enough to make himself Vulnerable, Not by making a demand, but by making a request. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't stand at a distance and shout over to her, You have to be saved. You have to be washed in the blood. You have to repent. So get on your knees. Turn or burn, sweetheart. No, indeed. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Instead, he comes up close to the woman. Close enough to get to know something of her person. And to to speak to her in a respectful and gentle way. As we see, our Lord doesn't uh, shy from saying some very hard things to the woman. Really hard things that he says to her a little bit later on. But he never treats her as just a a preaching object, but always politely. This is very important for us to understand, folks. Even in situations where we can't always agree with people, and no doubt there are many situations where we can't agree with what the person is saying that, that we're talking to. 
Sometimes to be faithful to the gospel, we have to disagree. And there's no way around that. But let us disagree in an agreeable way. So even if the person walks off, may they walk off knowing that we love and respect them. And maybe, in God's timing, they might just walk back again to us. Winning an argument is no victory, but a defeat for the gospel if he violated the person's honour by ranting and raving. So my family of faith, be strong enough to make yourself weak. Be strong enough even to risk losing an argument, and even to lose an argument, if you can just win the person at the end of the day. And in so doing, you'll show yourselves to be true sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father, who makes His goodness, His rain, His sunshine, just pour out upon the, the wicked as well as the righteous. So the Lord asks a question. And to the Lord's question, the woman replies with shock, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? This John adds the comment, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. I won't bore you with the details, but the separation, the, the hostility between the two peoples went back centuries. And it was both political and religious in nature, with the unhappy result that by the time of Christ, the two peoples absolutely hated each other uh, with a burning hatred. And the Jews, on their part, really thought of the Samaritans as really nothing better than a compromised, rebellious people who were little, little better than complete pagans. As far as the Jews were concerned, the Samaritans really were the scum of the earth. At this point in the discussion, there's a great opportunity for Jesus, as a good Jew, to do what every other Jewish man probably would have done at this point. So easily, Jesus could give the woman a complete history lesson on why Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Very easily he could get sucked into this whole big violent debate over who's right and who's wrong. A real slanging match. But Christ is a man on a mission And he's refusing to get deflected onto lesser issues which are just not going to do anybody any good. He sees the value of the person rather than the value of scoring a few cheap points in a debate. So rather than going down a blind alleyway of bitterness, the Lord sets us a wonderful example and skillfully steers the conversation onto the gospel. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I'm not going to explore that that, uh, text this morning, but I want to look at what the woman says next. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water. 
And then she says, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Now at this point I want to move from Christ's gospel method to his gospel message. There is no record in scripture of Jacob digging a well in this locality, or indeed any other locality. And it's quite possible that the woman's words just reflect an empty Samaritan tradition. But here's the key question. Are you greater than our father Jacob? And once again we can see the beautiful humility of the Lord and not answering her question directly. But I want us to linger over the question for it's heavy with significance which John clearly wants us to see. Significance which is written large in the rest of the New Testament and even in John's Gospel. To underline uh, what has been gotten at here, we need to understand the significance of Jacob. What's the significance of Jacob? Well, as we all know, he was the grandson of Abraham. There was Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the three great patriarchs, the three founding fathers of the nation of Israel. And you will recall that in Genesis chapter 32, after Jacob had wrestled with the angel of the Lord, his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. And as Israel, as Jacob, his twelve sons become the fathers and give their names to the twelve tribes which make up the nation of Israel. So you see what is the greatness of Jacob? He's the father of the nation. And you can just imagine the smirk on the uh, Samaritan woman's face as she sort of jokingly says to Christ, Are you greater than our father Jacob? He dug the well and gave water to his whole family. Are you greater than the father of our whole nation? The resounding answer of the New Testament is yes. Yes, Jesus is greater than Jacob. How so? Jacob gave birth to a physical nation. But Jesus gave birth to a spiritual nation. A spiritual nation from er- drawn from every tribe, tongue and people under heaven. So there is a, a parallel and a contrast between the two men. What's the parallel? Well, how did Jacob give birth to the nation of Israel? Through his twelve sons. And how did Christ produce his spiritual infinitely bigger spiritual nation through his twelve disciples. Did you ever ask yourself why did Jesus choose twelve disciples? Why not fifteen? Why not twenty? Because from the word go Christ was making it clear that he was building a new people, a new nation, a new and a true Israel. The Israel of God as Paul would write in Galatians 6, made up of saved Jews and Gentiles right across the globe. Think of it like this. In the Old Testament, this small patch of ground that was Israel was often presented as the new and expanded Garden of Eden, the land flowing with milk and honey where God walked with his people. 
But that land of Israel was a bit like a, a launch pad where God was setting the stage for the coming of his Christ. But now with the coming of Christ, the rocket had taken off. And no longer is God concerned about one wee patch of ground. Rather, God is pushing for all the nations to be reached with the gospel to the end that one day the whole earth will be filled with the the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. In other words, the whole earth will become the Garden of Eden. And that's exactly the picture we presented in Revelations chapter 21 and 22. Folks, I want to just wrap this up really by making uh, two statements here. One negative and the other positive. Negatively, I don't believe that the current nation of Israel has any biblical significance any more than any other nation. Israel certainly does have the right to exist and have security, like every other nation, but it's no longer God's elect people. And I think it's a big, go- it's a big gospel mistake to think that it is. In John 15, Jesus says those amazing words, I am the true vine. Now we love those words, but very few people realise just how radical those words really were. And they were spoken. And the incredible thing is this. That right throughout the Old Testament. Who is continually presented as a vine. Time and time and time again. It's the nation of Israel. So what Jesus was saying. That with, was that with his coming. The nation had fulfilled its destiny. And just as the Passover lamb. The bloody sacrifices, the temple, just as all these things would pass away as they were fulfilled in him. So now the nation of Israel, as God's elect nation, will pass away too, being fulfilled in him. Jesus saying, I am the true vine. What he's really saying was, I am the true Israel. And everybody is joined to me by faith. They become Israel, with Abraham as their father, which is the very point that Paul bangs home in Galatians. And of course, Jesus will soon tell the Samaritan woman back in John 4 that the hour is coming when you will neither worship uh, God on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. That's, that is an incredible statement. Nor in Jerusalem. That's You'll worship God. The true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. So when it comes to worship, it's no longer a question of where you worship, but of how you worship. To God, through Jesus. Let me just say this. To me, it is very, very wrong for Christians in the West, and especially in America, to think that they're doing God's will by just backing Israel, regardless of what Israel does. And Israel, it has to be said, has done some absolutely horrific things to the Palestinian people, some of whom are actually Christians. You know, how crazy is that? Now, in fairness, it has to be said that some of the Palestinians have, rep- have also done terrible things to the Israelis. 
But it's surely significant that when the modern state of Israel was set up in 1948, it was a completely secular nation with absolutely no interest in the Old Testament scriptures and still less in Jesus Christ. And consequently, almost all of the the world's Jewish rabbis at that time would not accept the modern state of Israel. Why? Because they passionately held that only the Messiah could re-establish Israel. And they were waiting for his coming. Then Israel would come next. And to this day, quite often you would come across, um, or you read of Jewish people who who describe themselves as being non-Zionist Jews. Which means they diligently practice their religion, but they want nothing to do with the modern state of Israel. Funny enough, on this one I fully agree with the rabbis. Only the Messiah could re-establish Israel. Where I disagree is the Messiah did come and he did re-establish Israel as the community of Jesus, made of believing Jews and Gentiles. But my family, let's be more positive here. Jesus is greater than Jacob. And through Jesus, the New Testament actually describes us Gentiles, as I'm guessing we probably nearly all are, as the sons of Abraham and heirs to gospel privileges way above and beyond anything that Jacob could give to his physical offspring. Through Jesus, we are the covenant people of God. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter writes to Christian believers and he says this, amazing words, But you are a chosen generation. Now it's very clear he's writing to Gentile Gentile believers. But you are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. His own special people. Now what is utterly significant here is that all of those titles were applied especially to Israel in the Old Testament. But now with the coming of Christ they are applied and reapplied to the church. And Peter continues that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Who were once not a people, but now are the people of God. Who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. In Ephesians 2, Paul writes the very same thing. Therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And Paul continues, For he himself is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create for himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. I don't think you can get much clearer than that. Brothers and sisters, all of this is ours today by the blood of Jesus. We are the Israel of God, the apple of God's eye.
God's covenant people built on the twelve foundation stones of the apostles and united to Christ. We are God's temple to offer up spiritual sacrifices of worship to God. That is our high and heavenly calling this day, now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Great and mighty God, we thank you that though we were once so far, far away in outer darkness, through Jesus you have brought us near. You have made us your very own people whom you love and whom you cherish. Lord, we praise you for such amazing, amazing grace that is poured out upon us in the Beloved. May we know and live and walk every day grasping more and more just how much you love us. Living God, we give you praise and thanks. Amen.